0: This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. First Timothy 3 is where we are, and I hope you'll open up your Bible and follow along with us. We're in our series, Unshakable Faith. I'll be real honest with you. After the last service, I wasn't feeling good, not physically, but just because what we got to go through this morning is not uplifting. You know, it's a a list of things that Paul says, here's what's going to be happening in churches in the last days, and they're not great things. And so I got done with that service and I thought, my goodness, Lord, um, this is not, uh, I don't feel good about this and uh, didn't enjoy it. A lot of times I really enjoy what I have to preach. uh, But this was not so much enjoyable, but God didn't call me to preach just the enjoyable stuff, did he? And uh, so we're going to go ahead with it this morning, and I hope you're there and you can follow along with us as we go through this passage this morning that talks about the last days uh, and the church and how Timothy, how to prepare for them, how do we as a church prepare for them. History, I love history, do you? I'm one of those history geeks. And I love anything historical. I was reading last night uh, on on a website um, about an amusement park that we used to go to when I was a kid up outside the D.C. area that no longer exists, but they had pictures. And it brought back memories. And I was looking at the history of this. It began in the late 1800s and and so forth. And I just love reading things like historical kinds of things. And before that, I read some other kind of history. I just like history, but we divide history. Um, by what we might call ages, periods of time that started at or about a certain date, sometimes a certain event started that period or that age. And in my life, and I'm I'm 64, uh, all of my life until just recently, uh, the event that divided all of time into ages or eras was the event, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ. And we had the B.C. era before Christ, you know what I'm talking about? And then we had the A.D. era. And when I was a little kid, I couldn't figure it out. It was B.C. shouldn't be A.C., you know? and uh, but, but A.D. from the Latin word for in the year of our Lord. And even secularists, even um, unbelievers and those of other reli- religions, worldwide, we refer to time as we're living in the year 2020 A.D., you know, And so everything was B.C., A.D. Uh, until recently, but then not, I don't know when it was, not long ago, the secularists and the politically correct decided for us that using Jesus as the mile marker of human history was insensitive to non-Christians. And they came up with a different name for the ages. Now think how genius this is. They went from B.C. before Christ to B.C.E., before the Christian era. <laughs> and then, and then, then the other one, um, they came up with after that was be the CE or the common era or the Christian era. So still who divides all of time? Christ. Yeah. Because all of history, as we talked about, I think in the series pre, um, prior to this one, actually the, the one we did at Christmas, all of history is his story is it not it's all wrapped around jesus he was the creator and he's the one that's going to bring it all to a close so it's all about christ and so they still use the time of christ as as a divider i find that fascinating but you know we had ages we have ages through history that we learned about in school when we were kids in our history books and science and so forth we had the ice age and the iron age and then after the iron age the bronze age and then we had you know in the earlier part of the last millennium, we had the, the, uh, the, the Dark Ages, and then the last, somebody turned the light on, and we had the Renaissance, and uh, the, uh, the Industrial Age in the 1800s, and for those of us who are baby boomers, baby boomers here today, we had the Age of Aquarius. <laughs> I know my wife danced to this song in the ninth grade. Did you not, Gail? Yeah, she probably did. Okay, um, so we have ages, and we still have them. Some of you are thinking, this guy has lost his mind. Long time ago. Then not long ago, well, the art is divided into ages, but the Bible, the Bible can be divided, if you will, into ages as well. And since a part of Scripture is prophecies of the end times that go beyond the first century's author's times. I mean, the guys that wrote the New Testament all lived in the first century. It goes beyond their time, what they spoke about. And the Bible tells us about times beyond what we have experienced yet here in 2020 as mankind. So the very last age that is still to come. Let me turn there and read it. Turn with me to Revelation 21, all the way in the back of your Bible. Revelation 21 um, it's called the the last times and verses one through four, John writes this in this vision that he had that we call the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth, it's where we are right now, had passed away and the sea no longer existed. So those of you who are surfers, got bad news for you. In the new heaven, which is what we normally incorrectly think of heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. No more sea, no more surfing. So, you know, get it out of your system before this comes. Um, I had passed away. The sea no longer existed. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Aren't you looking forward to that? Hmm. Death will no longer exist. Won't well, that be great? Grief and crying and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed Away, So that last final age is the new heaven and the new earth where those of us who know Christ will live with him forever. But in between Christ's birth, started the the ADBC right in there, in between Christ's birth and the resurrection and the new heaven and the new earth are what we call, can describe as ages in, in the Bible and what's future. Now, short age, one that didn't last for a long time what we might call the apostolic age can you guess what the apostolic age would have been it would have been that hundred years or leave actually less than that when the when the apostles those who walked with Jesus were on the earth and when they they took took the baton from Jesus and went into all the world and began to disciple all the nations and, and so forth. And uh, they, they wrote most of the new, all of the New Testament really during that time, during that apostolic age. And then they died off by the end of the first century. But there's another age that started during that time And that's when the Holy Spirit came upon the the apostles and upon a small group of believers in Acts chapter 2, and a new age was ushered in. And we're still in that same age 2,000 years later. Does anybody know what that age is called? It's called the, the church age, all right? It's where we are right now as Christians, as the church. Those of us who know Christ have the opportunity right now to live for him, to make him known amongst all the nations and make disciples. But overlapping the current church age and going into the last age, the end times, if you will, um, they overlap one another into an age where when Christ returns, an age that Paul speaks of here to Timothy in verse 1. It's called the last days. So if you go back to to 2 Timothy chapter 3, And verse 1, you see Paul talk about that. He said, know this, Timothy, I want you to understand this, young man. Difficult days, dangerous times will come in the last days. And then what he begins to do, beginning in verse 2, down through the next few verses, is he says, here's what it will look like. And the things, and and I never really realized this, but the things he describes here are not... Things that we can say, yeah, that's happening in the world right now. This is not about what's happening in the world. This is what's going to happen in the church during the last days. It's going to be a time where the church falls away. And these are going to be characteristics of people in God's church during the last days. And it's not a pretty picture. This is right before Christ returns to take the church home. Not going to be a nice time. So if you're taking notes, you're following along in the last days, We're told the church will fall away, will fall away. And we'll fall away in two ways. We'll fall away, the church will, in those last days. And maybe it's happening right now. I think maybe so. The church will fall away in two ways. One will be in our beliefs, in our doctrines, in our teaching, what we believe And what we teach, hopefully from the Bible, but then it will be out of the Bible a whole lot. And he's been talking about false teachers to Timothy. Um, We'll fall away in our doctrines. And then secondly, what naturally follows our beliefs is our behavior. We'll fall away, the church will, in its behaviors. Because behaviors follow because our behaviors, what determines our behaviors? The things we believe. If I believe something, I do it. So if I say I believe something and I don't act upon it, I really don't believe it. Belief causes me to act, and it causes behavior. We're gonna the church, he says, is gonna fall away, and we see it happening today. We really do. Churches right now are abandoning two thousand year old truths in an attempt to stay relevant within the world. Now we believe here at Nags Head Church that we as Christians are to be in the world, but not. Of the world. Have you heard that before? We're here, and we're here for a purpose, and that is to reach this world and make disciples of all the nations, to show the world who Jesus is. We're to be in the world. We can't escape it. We're not called to build a compound and all of us hide inside these walls and never venture out into the world. We, we have to be in the world, and we live there every single day at work, at school, wherever you might find yourselves. You live in the world, but we're not to be of the world, we are otherworldly, if you will. We have a different citizenship. Peter wrote, "Our citizenship," he says, "we have dual citizenship." Did you know that? Actually, we have, we have uh, three. If you, if you add your your national sit, I'm American. I'm a citizen of the world, but I'm also a citizen of heaven. And so we have these citizenships uh, in this world. But we're going to, um, we're seeing right now how uh, churches are abandoning these truths to stay relevant with the world. I love what our church's vision statement says. It says that we are committed as a church to be contemporary, that means up to date, in how we do church and how we do ministry. I was noticing this morning, first time we had it today, and I thought for a second, Rich's guitar playing was so amazingly fast that he was burning up the neck of his guitar because it looked like smoke was coming uh, off of Rich this morning. Did anybody else notice that? And uh, and then it disappeared. So he slowed down. But um, we are to be contemporary in how we do church. But we are listen to to me. We are unchanging in what we believe. All right? We go. We stick with the Bible. And uh, because we don't need to make the Bible relevant, it is relevant to today. A lot, of, a lot of groups are splitting over this attempt to stay relevant with the church right now. And you, you may be one involved in this denomination and, and God bless you. But uh, well, right now, the United Methodists If you've been reading about them, they're about to split. Listen to me, not just in half, they're about to split in three ways. Three denominations are about to come out of what now is the United Methodist Church. So it's no longer going to be the United Methodist Church. It's going to be the divided. And there are going to be three different denominations. One that that says we need to be super progressive. And another says, well, kind of let's straddle the fence. And then the third says, no, we're going to stick with the Bible, what we've always believed. That's happening in Methodism right now. The Anglicans, the Lutherans. Some Presbyterian churches, uh, groups have already done these things. My prayer, as pastor of nagshead Church, my prayer, and I hope yours is as well, is that nagshead Church will always remain true to the Orthodox Christian beliefs. What do you mean, Orthodox Christian beliefs? Those beliefs that the church has held for two thousand years. That we will always be true to those beliefs, and that we will not fall to, fall um, to the the desi- to the temptation of becoming a reflection of the world around us and what we believe. So what are the last days? What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say about the last days and the church? Let me give you some scriptures. I'm not going to read the entire passages just because of time, but I pulled some particular sentences out. But in Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, Timothy, or Paul writes to Timothy, he says, now the Spirit explicitly says, he wants them to have no Doubt about what he's writing to Timothy. Timothy, the spirit explicitly says this, that in later times, the last time, some will depart from the faith. Some does not mean all, does it? No, some will depart from the faith. And that departing or falling away from the faith is what the Greek word is, is a word that, from where we get our word apostasy or apostate. Doesn't mean the same as apostle, but it means it means have fallen away from what they once believed. Second Timothy four three and four says, "For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine." Again, who is they? It's not the world out there; it's the church. They will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They don't want to hear the old, old story. They don't want to hear orthodox truth. They want to hear something new. And they will turn away from hearing the truth and turn to myths. James 5, 1 through 8, James writes, be patient for the Lord's coming. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. 2 Peter 1, 2, verses 1 through 22, Peter says, There will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even de- denying the master who bought them. They'll even deny Christ. And man will follow in their unrestrained ways, and the way of truth will be blasphemed because of them. 2 Peter 3, Verses three through eight, Peter says, scoffers will come in the last days. And 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 he writes, I have in parentheses there and to, for those of us and those in that time, but us as well, especially, I think, who wonder, well, how long is it going to be before the last days arrive, Peter? How long is it going to be before Jesus returns? And Peter says, dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you with the Lord. One day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Don't put the Lord's coming on your timetable. The Lord has his, the Lord doesn't go by our calendar. He doesn't go by our clock. So be patient is what he's saying to them. Jude, the book of Jude, he says, but you dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time, there will be scoffers walking according to their own ungodly desires. These people created divisions and they are unbelievers, not having the spirit. They'll be false teachers. They want to be Christians, but they'll have crept into the church teaching false things. So Paul saw these things, as he writes to Timothy, as being future. This is what is coming. But at the same time, Paul believed he was living in the last days. When he describes the time when Christ resurrects the church and takes us to heaven, Paul included himself in that resurrection. He said, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Paul expected it to happen in his lifetime. Did it? No, so that's why Peter says, Hey, listen now, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day with the Lord. So be patient for that time. But Paul expected it to happen in his time. So here he's writing under the Spirit's inspiration and he gives Timothy a heads up. This is what you can expect, Timothy, because we're in the last days. This is what you can expect in your lifetime. Now, I want us to notice this morning, I don't want us to see these things and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. That applies to the church down the road sometime. I believe we're in the last days. And I think we're creeping um, maybe at a faster pace than than ever before, but we're coming up to that point in time when Christ returns. But you're going to notice in here some similarities in our own culture and time in the world. Some bad things are happening in the world, are they not? I mean, I read last week, Uh, Anybody else ever a Boy Scout when you grew up? Any of you guys ever in scouting? You raise your hand, Tilly. Okay, Girl Scout. Okay, Boy Scout. You know, they just filed this past week for bankruptcy because of all the lawsuits against the Boy Scouts of America because of all the pedophiles who were leaders in Boy Scout troops that abused young boys. And now these guys are growing up and they're suing because of all the things that happened to them. Good grief. No more Boy Scouts. Pretty soon, they're they're done. I saw on the news last night. We've been seeing the news the last couple of days about a little girl that vanished in Western North Carolina. Six month, oh, a little boy, six month old child, you know. And it was all over the news and all over Facebook. Pray about this child, and they found the child yesterday, dead, in a cemetery, is where the body was left, um, and they charged his mother uh, with his murder. And you think, my gosh, what causes? You know, and that, that, that couple in Hawaii, you know, their kids have been missing for months. And finally, this yesterday or day before, they brought her to the court and charged her with, uh, with their disappearance. And we think parents are doing these things. I made a comment on Facebook about the, the little one that was found in North Carolina, six months old. And I said, you know, in some states, Had that mother six months ago said, I don't want this baby, end its life, she would have had the backing of the the laws in that state, and there would have been no problem. They would have taken his life away. Six months later now, she's being charged with manslaughter. Horrible things are happening in our world right now, are they not? So we can see, and some people believe the world's going to get better and better and better and usher in the time of Christ, but the Bible says things are going to wax worse and worse and worse before Jesus comes. So similarities, but here's what I want you to keep in mind so that you don't write this off and say, well, this is not for me. This is for some church somewhere down the road. If you see things in this passage and you say, but that kind of describes me right now, and you very well may. Now, all of us at some time in our lives have done some of these things, been these kind of characteristics have been part of our lives, all of us, because none of us are perfect. But this becomes this is something that becomes a person's lifestyle, the things that Paul describes to Timothy. So let's look at some indicators of the apostate last days and um, in, in the churches in, here in chapter 3. But know this, difficult times will come in the last days, for people will be, first of all, lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Kind of let me divide all those things in, in the several sections if I can. First of all, he says, In the last days, a characteristic of churches that are falling away is misplaced love. Misplaced love. And he says, first of all, he starts off with lovers of money. How many of you like money? You like money? A couple of you? I do. You know, I like money. Yeah, there we go, bud. Both hands up. It talks about lovers of money. That phrase is used another place in the Bible in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 15, where Luke writes, the Pharisees the religious zealots who were lovers of money were listening to all these things that Jesus was teaching and scoffing at him. And he could hear them scoffing. And so he told them, he turned to them and looked and he said, you know what? You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people, what we wear where we live, the things we own. What is highly admired by people, Jesus said, is revolting in God's sight. Paul wrote, you're more familiar maybe with 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul wrote, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, money, some have wandered away from the faith. Christians have wandered away from the faith because they crave the riches and pierce themselves with many pains. Now if you if you do what he's described here because of your love for money and you pierce yourself with many pains, who do you have to blame for that, for that pain? Yourself. He said you pierced yourself because of what this love for money has driven you to do. These people with love for money, their god becomes money, it becomes possessions. Now is money evil? No, there's nothing evil about money because great good can be done with finances. Scott got up and said, I'm a missionary supported by NAG said church. My wife and I could not do the work we do in the high schools in Northeastern North Carolina with fellowship of Christian athletes if it were not from the support of you. We do great things, can do wonderful things with our finances. When we built this building, a little tiny church borrowed a million and a half dollars to build this building. By the way, next Sunday, I believe it is, is our our anniversary for when we moved into the building 13 years ago. And we're told that in another seven weeks or so, six or seven weeks, we are going to have that one and a half million dollars paid off. Isn't that amazing? So, well, that's okay. We're going to be more excited when we burn the mortgage and have a big cake. All right, so you guys got to come back for that, all right? Um, finances can do great things, can't they? We can do wonderful things with our money. But when it becomes our God, then we begin to to hoard it, don't we? When you and I love God first and foremost, we then see the purpose of having money and material things. And the purpose is so that we can use what God's given us. Say, well, God didn't earn it. I've worked really hard for it. Well, Who got you that job? You know? God provides for us. We use those things for God's purposes. Does he want me to give all of my paycheck every week and and maybe everything that's in my annuity, my 401k, my retirement? Does he want me to bring that and give that to God? Is that what you're saying in the answer, of course, is I doubt it. I doubt it. But spiritually, we need to see, and this this is, I think, if I could say we're to the top two lessons we as Christians need to learn, I think I would say this is number two. Spiritually, we need to see, Christian, that everything you and I own, everything we own, everything that has our name on it, belongs to God. Everything I own belongs to God. So if you came up to me and you said, I have no shoes, Rick, can I have your shoes? I would say, sure, they're God's shoes. You can have them. What would you do? I'd walk out without my shoes. But what would I do? I'd go buy another pair of shoes. Why? Because God has provided for me. All right? Um, in fact, I probably would say, let me take you to the shoe store and get you a brand new pair, All right? Um, everything I have belongs to him. Everything we have is because of his blessing and for his glory. Well, why do some people have more than others? And the answer to that is, I'm not sure, but that's up to God why he does that. It's this love of money, however, that drives modern prosperity theology, a false teaching that tells people, God, hey, you know what God wants from your life, in your life, God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be prosperous. And, and, I, and I hear that and I read those kind of things from people. And, and let me just give you my thought on that and think about this. I think it's really interesting that the one person in all of history that you and I are to emulate, to set up as Lord, to revere and to worship, above all others, is one person who had nothing of material wealth when he was on this earth. Did he? He had nothing. Secondly, not only lovers of money, secondly, lovers of self, narcissism. Uh, There was another time, again, I've done some things for the baby boomers here today with a little video, The Age of Aquarius. Here's another one for you old folks. Baby boomers, we're old. Um, uh, There was this time where another guy named Rick, used to watch them on TV when I was a little boy. But another guy named Rick sang a song and the words of the song said, you can't please everyone, so you've got to do what? Well, the old people know, you've got to please yourself. Lovers of self. The word here that Paul uses for, God, for love is not agape. It's not God's love, but it's a word that means to be fond of yourself. And as Christians, we're not to love ourselves first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We as Christians live first to please God in our lives. And I've often told folks that the most challenging, and I told you number two was everything I own is God. God's number one most challenging lesson that we can learn as Christians on this earth is this. Listen to me. It comes, it's a paraphrase from what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. And it simply says, and our church knows what I'm about to say, it's not about me. When we can learn that, then I'm not here for me. Then we've learned a huge lesson because we battle that all the time because we are basically selfish people, aren't we? Yeah, it's not about me. Me first is not Jesus first. It's not others before myself. This self love, as Paul told the Philippians in chapter two, verse two, when as he says he's describing Jesus. And he says, this is how we need to be, have this attitude. And he says, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Three, what else do we love? Misplaced love, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I've seen it happen when people make it their priority to make money and when they have plenty of money, they become more important than anything else. And then they use that money exclusively to pursue pleasure, where maybe in their lives they once served God, all of a sudden, because they have plenty, they disappear from his church. There are not too many fun things to do on the weekend. Everybody's working for the weekend, the song said, you know. And we here next to Church, we're working for the weekend too, but it's happening right here. Jesus nailed it when he said, he said, you know, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He had something there, didn't he? Because when we have riches, we don't want to be too concerned about God. Why should I be concerned about God? Because I've got everything I need. It's interesting that years later, Jesus dictated to John a letter to this Ephesian church in Revelation. Revelation chapter two, verse four, and he's talking to the Ephesian church and he says, you know, you guys are doing this and you're doing that and you're doing that and you're doing that and you're doing doing it all pretty well. Good job. But I've got something against you. I've got this one thing against you. Remember what he said? You have left your first love. You've abandoned your first love, he said to them. So when love is placed our love is placed misplaced in money and self and pleasure. What follows? Self-exaltation is next in Paul's list. And he says, they'll, they'll be boastful. The Greek word means empty pretenders. Look at what I've done. When I say, look at what I've done, who have we left out of the equation in our lives? The Lord. We need to say about everything that happens, look how the Lord is blessed. Look what the Lord has done. He said, they'll be proud. Someone who shows himself herself to be above other people, or we can use the word arrogant. It's the opposite of humility that Jesus modeled when during his ministry on earth, Paul writes about him, and he says, he who he was existing in the form of God, Jesus was, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus said, I came to serve and be served. Jesus said, I came to be a ransom. I'm not here for me, Jesus said. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Boastful, proud, self-exaltation turns people into blasphemers, profane, evil speakers, using abusive language, foul mouth, contemptuous, insulting. As Christians, our words are to be uplifting, are they not? Our language is to be seasoned. Paul said, with grace, it's not to be profane. Then he says, the next section is is they have wrecked relationships. That will be a, a hallmark of the churches that fall away. Wrecked relationships. And guess where he starts? He says, they'll be disobedient to parents. He starts with the young people. Disobedience to parents. Now, Everybody in this room at one time or another, and you're growing up were disobedient to mom and dad, were you not? Right? We all were, but but here he's talking about not just an occasional act of defiance or disobedience. He's saying, man, this is, they're going to be, this is their lifestyle. Disobedient, to parents, It's sort of a double-edged sword, really, because as parents, if we lack discipline with our children, what we're doing, we don't discipline our kids when they disobey. We're teaching them it's okay to disobey and that there are no consequences. And children are always tempted to disobey. If you've had children, you've had two-year-olds, right? And everything is about me, and everything is about mine, and everything is about no. We're tempted to disobey, and so we have to teach them obedience. But during the last days, this kind of thing, children will be let to do what they want to do and will grow worse among the church. Let me just say this. It's easy for us as parents. Always been this way, but I think it's becoming increasingly so easy for us as parents to buy into the world's philosophies of parenting. Isn't it? Secondly, what happens when kids are disobedient? They become ungrateful. Following disobedience, this just makes sense. They lack appreciation for what their parents have done for them. See, if your children grow up with you doing everything for them, providing everything for them, never teaching them how to work for something, I think parents ought to give kids chores. You know, I'm, I'm with Andy and Opie on that. Remember that, that story that Andy Griffith show where Opie thought he ought to get an allowance and didn't have to do anything for it. And... Uh, and he figured out what was wrong with that. Um, uh, I, I think we need to give our kids chores. We need to teach them an honest days work what happens when you work for something. And what happens when you work for something, and those of you who work for things and you own things because you have worked for them, you appreciate those things, right? If you worked really, really hard to buy that car and somebody in the parking lot at the, shop, at the shopping center at the grocery stores. Runs, runs their cart into your car and there's a date a dent or a scrape, scratch in your car, do you just go, oh, well, no big deal. You, you maybe don't react that way because, man, I, I appreciate my car. I worked really hard for that and I hate for people to abuse something that belongs to me. But then you say, but Rick, you said it belongs to God. And so then you say, look, God, what happened to your car here? You know, you can do that. If they if they don't appreciate you parents, they become ungrateful and they grow up with a sense of entitlement that somebody somewhere ought to do everything for me. College ought to be free. Man, that they're owed things their parents worked really really hard to attain. And then the next natural thing that follows is being unholy because nothing then is sacred. It's the same idea as what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 16 irreverent speech, which meant something to walk on, something that you don't mind stepping on and walking on, where it's grass or gravel or a path or the street or the sidewalk. It's made to be walked on. Holy things are not made to be stepped on. Nothing special. Things are unholy. And that includes, because we saw this last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that our bodies, are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so if if they become unholy, I can use my body to do whatever I want with it. It's nobody's business. Then they become unloving. They become hard-hearted, unnaturally callous, without feeling. And everyone is viewed as an irritation. Christians are to be, by the way, we're supposed to be the most loving people of all. Now hear me, love doesn't necessarily mean we agree. You know, we have this mindset today in our culture that if I disagree with you, I must hate you. you know? So we can't disagree anymore. That'd be called haters. Love doesn't mean we agree, but we can, even if we disagree, we can demonstrate Christ's love to all people who loved us as God did when we were his enemies. God didn't agree with my life before I knew Christ, but he still loved me. We can be, then he says, the next one come down the line is irreconcilable. When you hear the word irreconcilable, what do you, what's the first thing that pops into your head? What's the context? Divorce. People get they divorce, and the big reason for it is we just have irreconcilable differences. That's a catch-all for grounds for divorce, and it's but sometimes it's translated, maybe in your scripture, maybe translated this word as unforgiving. But as Christians, the Bible says a couple of things. We've been given Paul says, the ministry of reconciliation. We are to bring people together, not push them apart. Why is that? Because that's what Christianity, the gospel is all about. Isn't it? God reconciling we who were sinners to himself, who is holy, bringing us together. If anyone should be able to work things out and put things back together, it ought to be those who are indwelt by the powerful Holy Spirit. We are to forgive others. As we've been forgiven, and as we forgive, nobody goes through life without being hurt. Everybody does. And nobody, frankly, I don't think anybody goes through life without hurting somebody else in some way, shape, or form. We are to be forgiving. And then he says they're slanderers, gossips, speaking maliciously about others, spreading false reports about other people. In our in our 101 class that I used to teach, I, I would tell our people who are brand new to our church. I would say, "Now we have, we own four acres of property. The church does right over here. It's, it's all wooded right back here." And I would say, "And in the midst of that four acres of wooded property, the world doesn't know it, the town doesn't know it, but we have a cemetery." I said, "You know who's buried there? Gossips." That's what we do with gossips, you know. And of course, they chuckle too, kind of. Should I laugh at that? Yeah, it's, but we don't. And gossips will divide and tear up and destroy, so slanderers. And then Paul says, not only are there these things, but there's a lack of restraints of people in the church in the end times. Lack of restraints. And he starts off with without self-control. Hey, you know what? The inability to say no to things that aren't going to help us be like Christ will ruin us. Ruin us. Yesterday, anybody else go to Lowe's yesterday? Go shopping at Lowe's? And there were a bunch of people in the... Yeah, there, thank you, Andy. A bunch of people in the first gathering. I oh, went to Lowe's. I don't know if they were there when you were there, but I went to Lowe's, and guess who was out in the front of the store in the sidewalk? Did you, did you see them? Girl Scouts selling cookies. Thin mints. And Gail bought some for Nathan and Trisha. And she bought some for our granddaughters who were with us. And so they were eating these Thin Mints. Do you want one, Grandpa? And I said, no. Now, those things are like the best things in all the world. you know. I could I probably have at some time sometime in my life, sat down and pulled out a whole roll of those things out of the box. The box used to be that long, you know, for a couple bucks. Now it's this long for $4. I used to be able to pull out a whole roll of those things and get a glass of milk and down the whole roll, you know, you can't stop. And especially if you freeze them for a while, you know, you pull them out of the freezer. I said, no. The inability to say no to things that aren't going to help us be Christ-like. I don't think thin men saying no to them are necessarily going to help you be Christ-like, but we need to be able to say no to habits and addictions, say no to things that make us angry. A sign of spiritual maturity is the ability to say no to things that will not lead us closer to Christ. Then he says they'll be brutal. And this might be about temper. It's a savage lack of restraint that aims to hurt others. We might put bullying. We hear so much about bullying these days. By the way, I think we've always had bullies, have we not? I remember them when I was a kid. Bullying, without love for what is good haters opposers of good things they despise goodness in people being unable to be glad and and they they don't like to see people do good things necessarily and i wonder why that is maybe just because they wish they could be like that but they're not being unable to be glad when you're for example when your political opponents accomplish something that's good for the good for others hey good job you're not We're not on the same team, but you did something really good. Well, well done. (laughs) That's difficult to hear these days. Number four, there'll be traitors. Traitors lacking loyalty, disloyal. And this might refer, Paul might be referring here because of the time to those who turn Christians over to persecutors. Those who rat them out, you know, because they were killing Christians at this time. Reckless, people who respond impulsively. They're self-willed, they're rash, they're not concerned about the outcomes of what they do as long as they get their way. And then he says conceited. People who can't be talked out of anything, they're puffed up with knowledge. You can't tell them anything. Conceited people. Then Paul says, here's the key. Here's the key to staying in the truth. The end of verse five, he says, avoid these people avoid these people Timothy he's not talking here to unbel- about unbelievers because we're not supposed to avoid unbelievers are we we're supposed to have relationships with them we're supposed to get to know them engage with them in order to show them the love of Christ to speak grace into their lives to lead them to Jesus but he's talking here about christians professing christians who have rejected sound doctrine and so they live in ways that contradict what they say they believe. He said, avoid them, Timothy. Why is that? You've heard the expression, if you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. Avoid them, Timothy. Because if you don't, you'll become like them. Many churches today are divided and some are ruined and being ruined because there are people in their churches with these traits in the churches, and they're being tolerated. And in some churches, they are the the leaders. And already we're seeing churches that have become apostate, fallen away. Avoid them, have no fellowship with them. Uh, The expression is don't give them a floor to dance on. Not in your church. Hard times are coming, Timothy, in the end times for the church. And as we approach the rapture, which we obviously are getting closer to it. That time when Christ removes his family from the earth to begin judgment on the earth, the challenge before us, as it was for Timothy here 2,000 years later, the challenge for us, the challenge for our elders, for our pastors and our churches is to shepherd believers in the fold and try to keep them from leaving the fold because of the lure of the world and the deceit of false teachers. Have we seen that ever happen in an church? People leave the church because they've been deceived. Oh yeah, a couple of us sat down with a couple years ago and they said, we're leaving the church. And we sat down and said, how come? Well, we read this stuff on the internet and we said, it's not true. Well, we're leaving because we believe it is. And we said to them, so you would rather believe somebody who wrote something on the internet and you don't even know who the person is then believe the pastors who love you and care about you and want to guide you into Christ's likeness. And they said, yeah, essentially. And they left. Had another woman that saved here, baptized here, but that went, fell into Mormonism. Why? Because the man she loved was a Mormon. She said, I'd rather would give up what I believe in to be with him. Difficult in these times. Then Paul says here what they do and what they are, and we'll pick up with that next Sunday. Lord willing, why do you say Lord willing? Because between now and next week, Jesus may come and take us home. Would you like that, Pastor? You bet. I'm ready. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.